Good afternoon. Welcome to the Annie Warfield Lecture Series. On this year, the theme of this lecture series is Hope for Even the Most Wretched, speaking of election. Of course, there have been various introductions over the course of the various lectures that Dr. Schmidt has presented. Um, one thing certainly to note is that he comes to Princeton Seminary from Stellenbosch University in South Africa, where he served as professor of systematic theology. I think it's also important to note that he has also served as a pastor. Um, I've had a number of students uh, in conversation with me uh, say that he not only helps them to think in intellectually rigorous ways about theological themes and concepts, but he also brings into the classroom pastoral concerns. And that's something that deeply resonates with the commitments, of course, of the students here. And, and of course, that's um, something that uh, certainly is in line with uh, his reputation, his legacy. Over the past three decades, Dr. Schmidt has served as one of South Africa's most significant theologians. He has written extensively in both English and Afrikaans on the legacy of the Reformed tradition and its relevance to contemporary theological, social, and political questions. He has been a particularly prominent and influential voice in the church's repudiation of apartheid. Dr. Schmidt was one of the primary authors of the Bellar Confession written in 1982 and adopted by the Dutch Reformed Mission Church in 1986, the Bellar Confession boldly declared the sinfulness of apartheid and was a call for justice, reconciliation, and unity among the people. His teaching, supervision, research, and popular writing all draw on experience in ecumenical theology and the church's public witness in South Africa. In a recent interview he did with uh, PTS's media department, it's an interview uh, that's uh, posted on the website. I would invite each of you to go and read the interview if you have not. Uh, this question was asked of him, how will your students be equipped to participate in the church's public witness? And his answer was this, equipping students for the church's public witness is indeed at the heart of my teaching. This includes teaching students to understand contemporary public life and our global world, to understand the passion, power, and problems of the Reformed tradition, and to recognize the rich and diverse nature of witness in today's world. Dr. Schmidt is indeed a colleague who is committed to thinking anew how theology might contribute to the complex world we find ourselves living in. And so on this afternoon, he will continue his lecture series with his fifth lecture entitled, When You Come Together, Discerning the Body. Please welcome Dr. Dirk Schmidt. Uh, a word of thanks to Dr. Kerry Day for the very friendly uh, introduction. And once again to all of you for attending uh, during a uh, difficult and busy week. Also for people... Um, uh, from long ago today uh, from the University of the Western Cape who today drove a uh, long time and far to be here. I appreciate that uh, very much. In the Reformed tradition, the doctrine of election has been called the sum of the gospel, the center of the church's confession, the cardinal doctrine of the faith, and perhaps most often, the heart of the church, the core ecclesiae. 
election has been understood in many ways. It was treated in different loci with diverging implications. It was even treated in different ways within the oeuvre of one and the same figure, like Calvin. Election led to many controversies and played different roles in diverse historical contexts. No single understanding has ever been normative. This complex story has often been told recently once again in an insightful essay by Rinse Reelen Brouwer, the Dutch systematic theologian. In spite of all this difference, he says, one could claim that the main goal of the doctrine was always to witness to the mercy and justice of God. This year is the 400th commemoration of the Synod of Dordrecht. The Synod was also part of broader political struggles with traumatic, even tragic consequences. And the canons of Dort that were adopted there have been interpreted in diverse ways, often causing new conflicts. Still, it is also possible to speak of the deepest intention of the Synod of Dort. And this was, one could claim, notwithstanding the problematic ways in which they spoke and argued, it was to confess God's sovereign grace. Abraham Kuyper published a four-volume study on the Reformed faith called Ivotu Dodarkenu, literally according to the wish that was expressed during the Synod of Dordrecht. This refers to the appeal by the Synod on April 30, 1619, to all the international delegates to express their views about the decisions of the Synod uh, and to the which which these delegates then in turn expressed to the Synod to stay faithful to this doctrine since the truth of the gospel and the nature and calling of the church was at stake. It is in this four-volume study that Kuiper then described election as Cor Ecclesiae, the heart of the church. And indeed, in spite of all the controversies, there was some deep agreement that the doctrine of election was about the mercy of God and therefore about the heart of the church. For the Reformed faith, the church is the result of God's election and therefore called to be a living witness to this mercy and justice, to God's gracious and welcoming acceptance and embrace. Of course, this has tragically not always been the case. In the case of South Africa, it was easy to see how the reformed doctrine of election did not function as heart of the church. And how the message of God's gracious and welcoming acceptance and embrace did not form the church to be gracious and welcoming, accepting 
and embracing too. In 1982, the South African black theologian Johannes Adunis published his doctoral dissertation in the Netherlands. It was a church historical study on the development of the separate churches in the Reformed family in South Africa based on race and class and division and exclusion and privilege. He called the dissertation the afgebreekte skeetsmuur weer opgebouw, literally the broken down wall rebuilt, alluding to Ephesians 2. It was the story of apartheid ecclesiology as the story of erecting new walls of separation between people in the church and by the church. The ideology of apartheid, which literally means separateness, was born in the heart of reformed worship and ecclesiology. In 1857, a rural congregation of white colonists received permission from the Synod to host separate celebrations of the Lord's Supper. White settlers were unwilling to support mission work that would lead to black converts and former slaves sharing with them from the same cup. The Synod said that it was scriptural to share the supper with one another because we are all one body, but if the only way to support mission was to satisfy the weakness of some, then they reluctantly gave their permission uh, for such unscriptural practices. The short version of a long story is that these unscriptural separate celebrations of the Lord's Supper soon became separate worship services, then separate buildings in which to worship separately, then separate congregations for different racial groups, then separate ethnic and racial denominations for these separate congregations. And then Reformed theology and teaching began to justify all these practices and institutions of separation from Scripture. The Tower of Babel narrative in Genesis 11 was the most widely used of all scriptural references. It was used as proof that the Creator, out of divine grace, confused their languages as a blessing so that human beings were no longer able to communicate with one another and therefore forced to move apart to their different dwelling places and lands, never to meet again, to enjoy the Creator's original good intention, namely to grant them difference and diversity and separation, which they refused and resisted by their longing to be all together around their tower. Reformed theology began to justify all of this with doctrinal arguments. The adage, gratia non tollet naturam sed perficet, meaning that grace will never destroy nature, but rather makes it perfect, was used to argue that since nature teaches us the riches of diversity and difference, 
Grace will necessarily follow nature in this and never contradict nature so that it follows that it is God's will that there should be separate cultural and national churches for every nation on earth. The unity of the church for which Jesus prayed and died could never have been attended as a visible unity which would deny this blessed and complete separateness and apartheid. When apartheid became the political policy of the country century later, the official church journal gave thanks to God for the fact that their reformed church polity now finally became the law of the land as well. White reformed believers, ministers, and churches enthusiastically supported the new policy because by now they firmly believed that apartheid is the will of God according to the scriptures and the reformed tradition. New laws were enacted, several of them requested by the leaders of reformed churches from the government, all intended to classify people based on race, to create separate neighborhoods according to race, to forcefully remove black people from where they lived, to townships often without much infrastructure in order to make place for white residents in their former areas, to completely separate schools, public places, shops, theaters, transport, everything from cradle to grave on the basis of race, and to make interracial social communication impossible and in many ways illegal. The inevitable consequences were clear. To the extent that the doctrine of election served as the heart of the church, it now became a doctrine of the chosen people of God, of special calling and special purpose and special covenant. With time, any sense of unity with others, any sense of belonging together, or any sense of being one in our shared image of God and one in our common human flesh, the two signs given to us by God to recognize in one another, irrespective of who the other may be according to the Reformed tradition, all this sense was lost. With time in our country, a strong sense of alienation grew in church and society, feelings of frustration and bitterness and anger and therefore feelings of fear. The hope grew that borders and boundaries may bring peace and may protect people from one another instead of accepting and welcoming one another as Jesus Christ welcomed us. People were forced to live separate lives in separate homelands, separate townships, separate worlds. And with time, the historical realities of inequality and injustice increased. Systemic forms of social, economic, and political exclusion and oppression developed. The slogan amongst whites became separate but equal. And many, including white reformed 
people probably believed the slogan because they wanted to believe the slogan, while everyday realities were actually those of gross inequality, injustice, and exclusion based on race and racism. This is the background against which the black reformed churches confessed in the confession of Belha that according to the scriptures, the church is called to witness to a different God and a different way of life. Bella has a simple structure of three convictions, each with rejections of teaching and practices that deny and contradict these three convictions. And these three convictions are framed by a brief introduction and a brief conclusion. Bella confesses that through God's word and spirit, we are called to make the unity of the church visible, the unity already given as a gift. This unity does not aim at uniformity, yet it is not merely spiritual and invisible either, but is rather a call to become concrete and alive and real in love. It should be embodied in the life of the church as witness to the world in the many ways in which the Bible and also the tradition describes this unity, the, mon the bond of mutual love and belonging and accepting and welcoming. Bella confesses that through God's word and spirit, believers have been reconciled with God and therefore with one another and that this reconciliation in Christ and through the Spirit is more powerful than all natural and cultural and human factors that may threaten to divide and separate and alienate believers from one another. Our feelings of otherness and difference, however strong and valuable and legitimate they may be, may never be allowed to lead to a brokenness and bitterness between believers since this would deny and contradict the reconciliation we share in Jesus Christ. Bella confesses that God has revealed God's self as a God of compassionate justice, the helper of the helpless, the protector of widows and orphans, who cares in a special way for the weak and vulnerable with their many faces, including the downtrodden, the poor, and the marginalized. Through God's word and spirit, the church is called to follow in this as disciples standing with God, practicing compassion and pursuing justice, while resisting those powerful people who misuse their power and privilege to harm and injure others. Against the apartheid background, it was particularly significant that Bella confessed these three convictions together and simultaneously. Although black reformed Christians were together in rejecting apartheid, they were divided among themselves also within the synod that drafted Bella on how to respond to the apartheid realities. Some wanted the church to be visibly one and were therefore hesitant to speak of reconciliation and justice, since those discourses could easily threaten 
church reunification. Some wanted reconciliation, which they understood as good personal relations of forgiveness and peace, and were therefore hesitant to speak of unity and justice, since those discourses could threaten such personal relations. Some wanted justice and were therefore deeply suspicious of all talk of unity and reconciliation, which could so easily serve as cover-up and excuses not to face the continuing legacy of the past and therefore the systematic injustices of the present. So already with the structure, Bella confessed that these three, living unity, real reconciliation, and compassionate justice, belong together. The Synod confessed publicly and with one voice that the church should not strive for one of these without the other, since they all belong together. They confessed that God made us one and called us to visible unity so that we cannot choose our brothers and sisters but receive them, in the words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. They confess that God's word and spirit is able to reconcile us and calls us to the ministry of real reconciliation, overcoming our divisions and facing our past. And they confess that the biblical God calls the church to follow in caring for the destitute and wronged by resisting abuse of power and practices of injustice. They confessed all three of these convictions together, and this became the bond binding them together in their common witness. The brief introduction to Berla may seem innocent, almost self-evident, but against the historical background, it was already a deeply controversial and significant claim. It was a claim about the doctrine of election as heart of the church. It was a claim with deliberate allusions to reformed confessional documents from the 16th century, namely that the triune God gathers, protects, and cares for the church. It was the claim that the church belongs to God and is therefore not the church of any nation or people or folk. It was the claim that the church is one holy and Catholic church called by God as the communion of saints from the entire human family, from the beginning of the world to the end. And although these words sound harmless, they were deeply polemical at the time. They were spoken against the background of long-standing theological debates about election and ecclesiology, and it was an appeal to the tradition against what had become the tradition in our context. It was an appeal to speak the language of election differently from how this language was spoken at the time in the reformed circles in South Africa. In the conclusion, Bellar confessed, again alluding to the confessional tradition, that the church is called to confess not only by words, but also by actions and structures, even if this may involve cost and sacrifice, because those in authority and power might oppose such words, actions, and structures. The conclusion confessed that the church was willing to do this and willing to suffer this, 
which the church did, since Jesus Christ is Lord, another deeply held reformed conviction. The Synod at the time also adopted an accompanying letter in which they explained what they were doing and why. They declared that this was not a political act, but something done for the sake of the church and the gospel that it proclaims, the sum of the gospel and the heart of the church itself was at stake. They knew that they were calling for the dismantling of structures of thought, of church and of society, which had developed over many years, they said. They knew that we shall have to come to know and encounter both ourselves and others in new ways. Still, they pray that our brothers and sisters will want to make this new beginning with us so that we can be free together and together may walk the road of reconciliation and justice. They knew that this was a road whose end we can neither foresee nor manipulate to our own desire. They knew that on this road we shall unavoidably suffer intense growing pains while we struggle to conquer alienation, bitterness, lack of reconciliation, and fear. Their prayer was therefore that the act of confession would not place false stumbling blocks in the way, but would be reconciling and uniting in spite of the pain, the sadness, the repentance, and the remorse needed on such a way of renewal. In our case, in South Africa, it was easy to see how the doctrine of election did not function as the heart of the church, in spite of our claims. It was painfully easy to see how the message of God's gracious and welcoming acceptance and embrace did not form the church to be gracious and welcoming, accepting and embracing too. Is it, however, possible that the roots of our failure were much deeper than South Africa? Is it possible that the real causes of our ecclesiology of separation and division lie much further back in our tradition? Is it possible that our tradition never really understood or meant what we said when we spoke of election as heart of the church. At least for Upke Noordmans, this is part of my story, which would have happened yesterday evening if, if it was not cancelled. But as far as, uh, at least for Upke Noordmans, a visionary Dutch pastor of the 20th century, this was sadly true of Protestantism as a whole. The heart of many churches he said, has always much rather been our own notions of morality, our own ways of seeing the world and seeing one another, treating one another, welcoming one another or not, practicing mercy and justice or not, 
rather than the free grace of divine election. And when Heike Obermann, I referred to him in an earlier lecture as well, the renowned Reformation historian, described Calvin's greatness, he spoke of two discoveries that Calvin made, that of the comfort of the doctrine of election and that of the Catholicity of the church. But then he remarked with obvious disappointment that the tradition failed to bring these two discoveries together. We have instead become a tradition that knows very well how to resist any appeal to visible unity. Nordmans, uh, Obermann said with obvious sadness. So how deep are these roots of separation in reformed ecclesiology? After all, already Calvin, already Calvin himself knew this sadness because of this failure. Nothing, most beloved sisters and brothers, causes me greater sorrow. He wrote from Strasbourg to the community in Geneva in June 1539. Nothing causes me greater sorrow than to hear about the disturbances and scattering amongst them. I cannot hear without great and intense horror that any schism should settle down within the church. He wrote, I find myself compelled to find a medicine for this disease. The well-known ecumenist Lucas Fischer once published a booklet called Pia Conspiratio, Calvin's Commitment to the Unity of Christ's Church. It is a collection of quotations from Calvin's work, moving, passionate, critical, radical quotations. It is impossible to read these quotations without feeling Calvin's deep commitment to visible unity, but also his deep sadness at the failure of the church already in his day and the radical consequences which he then drew from those failures. For him, everything was at stake in this failure to accept and welcome one another in the church, including our salvation. In the struggle against apartheid ecclesiology, South African theologians were often inspired by Calvin. Many of what Calvin said became household thoughts in our circles, in our struggle for our tradition against our tradition. For him, visible unity did not mean uniformity. However, division and lack of unity should not merely be seen as innocent pluriformity either, but for what it really is, and then resist it. For Calvin, the church is one because Christ is one. Believers have fellowship with Christ and therefore with one another. They belong to one another because they belong to Christ, not the other way around. They are not one because they accept one another, but they accept one another because they are one. They are not one because whatever natural or biological or cultural or political bond already binds them together. 
but because they are engrafted into Christ, partake of Christ, share in Christ, have communion with Christ. They belong to Christ and therefore to one another in a spiritual communion called koinonia. And for him, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is central to this unity with Christ and with one another. He spoke with powerful rhetoric of what it therefore means to respect and disrespect this communion experienced in the Lord's Supper. In the Supper, we are exhausted, exhorted to charity, peace, concord, and unity without division. He says, we cannot love Christ without loving our brothers and sisters. And we can no longer harm our sisters and brothers without also harming Christ. We profit from the supper, he says, when this thought is engraved on our minds. And I quote, that none of our sisters and brothers may be hurt, despised, rejected, injured, or in any way offended without our, at the same time, hurting, despising, and injuring Christ. That we cannot have dissension with our brothers and sisters without at the same time dissenting from Christ. That we cannot love Christ without loving them. That the same care we take of our own body, we ought to take of them who are members of our body. That as no part of our body suffers pain without extending to the other parts, so every evil which our brothers and sisters suffer ought to excite our compassion. End of the quote. He therefore had harsh words for those who celebrated the supper while showing no zeal for charity and living alienated and estranged from their sisters and their brothers. Those who dared to rush forward like swine, he wrote, to seize the Lord's Supper without any zeal for charity, who dared to mingle the sacred symbol with their dissensions, they did not discern the Lord's body, he said. They may declare that their only comfort lies in their communion with Christ, yet they bear witness against themselves, divided and separated by ill will from their sisters and brothers. They have no part in Christ, Calvin said. They clearly did not understand how election and welcome is the heart of the church. Such disunity caused sadness in Calvin's time, but could it be possible that the Reformed tradition always struggled to understand the heart of the church? And could this be because we struggle to understand God's election and free grace? For obvious reasons, Protestantism was always challenged by the unity of the church that they confessed according to the creeds. 
The Augsburg Confession, Article 7, famously said that pure preaching of the gospel and proper administration of the sacraments are sufficient to recognize the true church. Enough. Satis est. That is satisfactory. That is enough. Everything else doesn't matter. It is adihafura, arbitrary. Calvin famously took over this description of the church from the Augsburg Confession, but then deliberately added atque audire and heard. The true church is there where the gospel is purely preached and heard. We do not really know what Calvin meant, but he obviously thought that it should somehow be possible to discern that the pure preaching of the gospel is indeed also heard in the church. It has often been claimed that Protestantism never developed a proper ecclesiology. And the theological declaration of Barmen in 1934 therefore struggled with these questions. It became clear to many at the time, time Nazi period, the impact on the church of the Nazi um, ideology, it became clear to many, including Bonifer, that the life of the visible church, the order and the ministries and the public presence and the mission of the church, that the life of the visible church should somehow witness to the faith of the church and not contradict and deny the faith of the church. The ordnung, the structure of the church should somehow witness to the botschaft, the message of the church and not contradict that. The existence form of the church, said, said Bonhoeffer, the way that the real church is visible in the real world should witness to the wahrheit of the church, the truth claims that we speak about the church, according to Bonhoeffer. And Barmen was a first attempt to recognize and to reclaim this insight for Protestant ecclesiology. The exclusion of believers from Jewish descent from offices of the church was denying the truth about the church. And that could not be the case. Some people therefore called Barmen the first steps towards a Protestant ecclesiology. And in his Warfield lectures called the Barmen thesis then and now, uh, Ibrard Bush spoke movingly about this history and its implications for today. In the spirit of Barmen, Protestant churches in Europe would later, after decades of discussion, adopt the well-known Leuenberg Agreement in the 1970s, which led to the formation of the Leuenberg Church Fellowship, which in turn led to the community of Protestant churches in Europe and to the adoption of a study called the Church of Jesus Christ, which some call the first proper Protestant ecclesiology. This movement towards communion uh, continues until today, searching for fuller communion between the divided churches of Protestantism. In the same spirit, there have been many ecumenical dialogues on the nature and calling of the church over the last half century, sometimes multilateral, sometimes bilateral. 
sometimes within world confessional bodies, sometimes within the uh, global ecumenical movement. And at the moment, most of these dialogues focus on the notion of communion in their attempts to develop a Protestant understanding of the church. The church is communion. Yet what could that mean? And can the divided and fragmented churches of Protestantism with integrity claim to be in communion with one another and to practice communion with one another? And if we don't do that and can't claim that, what happened to the unity of Christ? The two bodies representing Lutheran and Reformed churches worldwide, the Lutheran World Federation and the World Communion of Reformed Churches, have also been involved in bilateral dialogues with one another on the nature of the church for many years. And finally, they produced a report in 2014 called Communion on Being the Church. During that process, it became painfully clear that Protestant churches suffer from an ecclesiological deficit from the beginning. A lack of appreciation of what the church is called to be manifesting itself in our divisions and separations and fragmentations and conflicts everywhere. Last year during the 500-year commemoration of the Reformation, these Lutheran and Reformed churches of the world together made a Wittenberg witness based on their study of communion. The Wittenberg witness was publicly signed by representatives of these bodies during a worship service in the city church of Wittenberg, where Luther regularly preached. The Wittenberg witness also provided the liturgical order for this worship service. Everything during the service followed the structure of the witness with scripture readings, prayers, hymns, and proclamation, and everything done in six languages, including Bahasa, Indonesia, Korean, and French. In the Wittenberg witness, these Protestant churches lamented together that they have often failed to discern the body of Christ. Together they, give, they gave thanks and rejoice in the unity already ours in Christ, which we do not create and cannot destroy, since the church is the work of God, the creation of word and spirit. The gift of unity does not require uniformity, they said, but can be found and celebrated in, also in diversity, so that we are united, not divided, by such diversity. Together they celebrated that we are one in Christ, sharing a common heritage and a common faith, and are united in confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they rejoice that there is no longer, between Lutherans and Reformed people, need for separation, since our differences are not church dividing. We are one. Together they acknowledged, confessed, and lamented 
that divisions still obscure our unity and hamper our witness. They regretted that through our history, we have too often formed divisive habits and structures, failing to discern the body of Christ. Injustice and conflict scar and scandalize our one body, they said. We are implicated in colonialism and exploitation that have marked our history, they said. They are saddened by the ways we have allowed race and ethnicity, class and inequality, patriarchy and gender bias and arrogance of nation, language and culture to become divisive and oppressive in our churches and in our world, they said. Together we hear God's call and acknowledge the claim of Christ upon all areas of our life, they said. Words from Barman. Listening for God's word to us, we, ex we hear God's word and we experience a call to continuous reform, they said. We hear this call when the word is preached and the sacraments are celebrated. We hear this call from those of our forebears, like Calvin, who were deeply committed to the visible unity of the church, who regretted schisms and called them sin, who described the divided church with sadness as a dismembered body. We hear this call from the many protests born in pain, in the, flight, in the plight of refugees and migrants, in the frustration and humiliation and longings of so many in our common world, in the voices of young people who express concern for the future of the earth, our common home. In all these ways, they said, we hear God's word calling us and claiming us. And together they therefore longed for renewed imagination of what being the church in communion could mean for our world in our time, they said. In the report, the 2014 report on communing being the church, they already said that we are so much the products of this long history of division the, that what we need is imagination, uh, the ability to think uh, the unthinkable and to see what is not. We need new imagination, they say, to live together in ways that would embrace our unity, not only as gift, but also as calling. We need new imagination to dream a different world, a world where justice, peace, and reconciliation prevail, they said. We need new imagination to practice spiritualities of resistance and prophetic vision, spiritualities in service of life, Spiritualities formed by the mission of God, they said. And together they committed themselves to respond to these yearnings of our world and our time with concrete action, convinced that God's word leads us to deeper communion. We commit to explore new forms of life together 
that will more fully express the communion we already have in Christ, they said. We commit ourselves to redouble our common efforts to embody our unity, together resisting the forces of injustice and exclusion, they said. Together they pray that the Holy Spirit may give us courage and imagination faithfully to live out our commitment to unity, expressed in shared worship, shared witness, and shared work in the world. We pray for liberation in the wilder world, and by God's grace, a thoroughgoing renewal and reformation of our churches, they said. Perhaps one could say that the spirit of this Wittenberg witness was deeply Protestant. Together with all celebration and gratitude and praise, one senses a spirit of sadness over the failures of Protestantism over centuries and in so many parts of our common world. It is a failure to discern how the doctrine of election is the heart of the church. It is a failure to see how the message of justification by grace alone extends to one another and all others in that we welcome and accept them like Jesus Christ welcomed and accepted us to the glory of this God. In a different context, but in the same spirit, Benjamin Warfield once wrote about reading the Bible that Determining the meaning is a task of sympathetic imagination. The teaching, he said, meaning the meaning, the implications, the consequences of what we read, the teaching lies not immediately in the words, but in the wide vistas, its visions open to the fancy. It is the seeing eye here that is needful, he said. <laughs>